Hey, hey, beer fans! Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we gather 25 of the world's best brewers and get their tips right into your brain pan. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly four years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with some way to check it out. And on today's episode, we're back to our normal format, which means we're going to get your feedback. We're going to go to the pub and get the beery news of the world. And a quick stop to the library to talk about a really great article that we found all about some Lambic beers here in America. And then off to the brewery, we're going to talk about, well, one unfortunate thing that's probably going to raise some malt prices along with stuff from hop growers. And then we head into the lounge to talk to somebody who's making a wonderful, wonderful beer. And then, of course, we'll answer your questions. We'll do something other than beer and quick tip you and then get you on your beery way. Boy, man, we are just busy, busy, busy. Yep, but no time like the present to get to it. All right, so we'll take a quick break here and we'll be back in just a minute. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners... Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Thanks for sticking around. We are back, and we're starting off with a few announcements this week. The first one is that there's a new Brew Files episode out where Drew talked to our good friend Ronaldo in Brazil about a new BJCP style that kind of started down there. Yep, so it's episode 42, The Sour Cat, because the style is called Katarina Sour, and it's a fascinating thing. What started as an educational tool has now actually gone all across South America and still has people up here... Well, scratching their heads. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, man. When we were there a few years ago, uh, it seemed like there was a real preponderance of sour beers with fruit. When I was in Chile a year ago, I saw even more of that spreading around. And uh, just to think, man, we were there at the very beginning. Yep, we remember when. <laughs> Maybe we'll get to see what it is now. That's right. And don't forget, you can visit one of our affiliates, brewswag.com, and get your hands on all sorts of beery trinkets you need to make your life complete. Don't forget to use the code experimental at checkout to receive a discount and give a little money back to the podcast. That's right, brewswag.com for all your beery swag needs. And I want to let you know about something coming up in March. 
I'm going to be in Asheville, North Carolina, teaching at the Brew Your Own Magazine Boot Camp, uh, along with my good buddy, Marshall Schott. Uh, I should say our good buddy, huh? Marshall and I will be teaching a class on homebrew experimentation. Uh, if you don't know how the uh, Brew Your Own Boot Camps work, it's a two-day event. Uh, it runs from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. You sign up for one course each day, and it goes all day long. So you'll be getting a whole lot of Marshall and me, maybe too much. But there are events before and after uh, going out and visiting uh, breweries in Asheville. There's a nice reception going on. If you're interested in potentially going to Asheville, seeing me and Marshall, and believe me, it's not just going to be us. Uh, John Palmer's going to be there, Chris White, Gordon Strong, Brad Smith, Michael Tonsmeyer, Ashton Lewis, Steve Parks, John Blickman, and more, it says right here. You can go to byobootcamp.com to get more information or to sign up and pick the courses that you want to take. I think it's going to be a whole bunch of fun, and uh, I, I wish you could be there, but you're going to be in Dallas that weekend, huh? And I'll be at the Blue Bonnet speaking, so if you're not in Nashville, come to Dallas and meet me and participate in one of the world's largest homebrew competitions. And don't forget, when you register for the BYO Boot Camp, Mention Experimental Brewing in the comments at the checkout to help support the podcast. That's right. And speaking of supporting the podcast, don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It is Nowzad, an animal rescue charity in Afghanistan, started uh, to help soldiers with the dogs they found there. And they're into a whole bunch of different things now, huh? They were actually just on an Animal Planet special on TV uh, covering, you know, how the charity was started, you know, by a British Marine who rescued a dog from a village called Nauzad and took him away from the war zone and how they're now actually setting up a shelter in Kabul, training uh, all these women vets and other people in the community to, you know, really kind of just have a better attitude about dogs and some of the craziness that they have to go through in order to actually rescue these animals. So totally worthwhile charity. Yeah, man, it's a, it's a great charity. So please go to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link and uh, toss us a few bucks that we can toss to them. Okay. Now it's time for my favorite segment. Feedback. feedback. <laughs> I hope your ears are okay after that. We have a couple of pieces of feedback like we always do after Q and A because you and our other listeners can come in and help us further answer people's questions or at least tell us where we got things square. Now, our first piece of feedback comes in from Clay Littleton in Pembroke Finds, Florida, about mouthfeel. And he says here, on your latest Q&A, there was a question about mouthfeel. And I just wanted to point out that you didn't mention how carbonation can affect mouthfeel. Keep up the good work. And Clay, you're absolutely right. Carbonation totally can. And it's a little weird because in a lot of ways, carbonation will undercut the perception of your mouthfeel. And at the same time, with enough fizzy bubbles... Well, it'll make the beer feel almost fluffy. <laughs> so, fluffy, fizzy beer, huh? Fluffy, fizzy beer. But more on that later. <laughs> right. We have another piece of feedback that comes from Reddit user Pop and Loch Ness Monsta and talks about the bottling beer that was carbonated by spunding in the keg. And, uh, you know, I'll try and, I'll try and make this somewhat uh, understandable. For the guy asking about spending and bottle conditioning, 
I don't think it should actually be that complicated. If the guy is only fermenting at 5 to 10 PSI, as he says, and not fully carbonating, he should be able to determine how many volumes of CO2 are in the beer by knowing his spending pressure and beer temperature. That makes a lot of sense. We know the beer right after fermentation is saturated with CO2, so looking up 5 PSI and 65 degrees Fahrenheit, for example, on a keg carbonation chart will tell you how many volumes are in the beer already. Then priming sugar additions can be adjusted based on this value. As far as I know, this is exactly the same math that's happening in priming calculators when it asks for the beer temperature. The only difference being that the priming calculators are using 0 PSI rather than 5 PSI or whatever is the reference pressure. In both cases, they're using that temp and pressure to determine how much CO2 is already dissolved. Uh, excellent points there, man, and that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, and I'm still trying to figure out the calculus to go from point A to point B, but I think Pop and Lock is on to something, and so maybe it's just time to do some more cogitating. Yep. And our next piece of feedback comes from John Pollard regarding Imperial's Juicy Yeast, a.k.a. A38, and he says, On the pod Q&A, you'd asked about this yeast. I was just on the phone with them today. A38 is Boddington's, more or less. That's a weird pilsner. He may get a yellow bitter. Kind of. Well, <laughs> really interesting that Boddington's turned out to be a juicy yeast, but... Well, it makes sense. The juicy thing is just people talking hazy, and what's one of the most popular yeast strains for making hazies? Why yeast 1318? London 3, a.k.a. Boddington's. Ah, uh, yes, that's true, man, and I guess that that is just more explanation of why I've never cared much for Boddington's. And our final piece of feedback comes from Corey White regarding moderate beer strength party gal. If you remember on the episode that we talked about Party Gal, we talked about how we liked the technique for big beers, but we weren't too certain about it for moderate beers and just in terms of level of effort and return. So here's uh, Corey's feedback. He says, hey, Denny and Drew, I did my first and so far only Party Gal about two months ago and wanted to make a case for use even in a moderate gravity brew. I chose a Saison for my experiment, one grain bill, two mashes, and three different beers. The first runnings was five gallons at 1057. The second runnings was four gallons at 1018. Now, he got out of it three beers. Number one was two gallons, all the first runnings, with one pound of sugar for an OG of 1080. The second beer was one gallon of both the runnings, with an additional half pound of sugar for an OG of 1048. And the third and final beer was one gallon of the first runnings, along with three gallons of the second runnings, for an OG of 1028. He says, I also experimented by dry hopping numbers one and number three and adding a white pepper and orange zest tincture to number three. Even with the lower OGs, since I mashed low and used the French Saison yeast, they all attenuated between 0.98 and 1.0. So they each ended up being around 10.5, 6.5, and 3.5, respectively. It was probably a little ambitious for only my fourth brew ever, but they turned out. Great podcast and keep up the awesome work. Well, thank you. And... Boy, for uh, what beer number four you said, hats off because great job pulling that off. I think this is an interesting case here. And after all, part of the point of talking party gal was really just how could we get more from our brew day? So thank you to Corey for pointing out a good use case for moderate strength beers. <laughs> yeah, man, that's that's a lot of work. Uh, I don't know if I would uh, bother with it myself, but I didn't have to. So good on you, bud. All right, off to the pub. Off to the pub. It's time to have a beer. Stick around, listen to these messages, and we will be right back. 
Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaca you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaca wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Thanks for sticking around. We've made our way over here to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, wherever it is. And we're having a couple beers. Uh, what are you drinking today, Drew? I'm drinking something I couldn't wait to send you. I'm drinking a Smog City coffee porter. It's a beautiful little beer from my friends down at Smog City, uh, uh, Jonathan and Lori Porter. It's about a, like a 6% throwback American porter. But the best part is it uses an insane amount of coffee in it, some something like five pounds uh, per barrel. <laughs> wow. Do you know how they add the coffee? I mean, is it like a brewed coffee? Is it dry beaned? No, they use beans. And they just like kind of like dry bean it in the ferment or something like that? It always has this beautiful, rich chocolate and coffee thing, like you're, you're eating those chocolate-covered espresso beans. And it's always right. one of my favorite beers, <laughs> even though... Even though it's stupidly hot here. <laughs> yeah, right, man. It's pretty It's pretty close to stupidly warm here. So I am drinking an IPA, believe it or not. I'm having Starburst IPA from Ecliptic Brewing in Portland, Oregon. This IPA is, is slightly hazy. And when I first saw it and uh, read the description on the label, I was thinking, oh, maybe this is going to be one of those super hazy, super juicy ones. And it's it's not. It's it's basically a Pacific Northwest style IPA with a, a little bit more softness to it than you would normally expect. It is loaded with hops. It's uh, Amarillo, Azaka, Centennial, Citra, Mosaic, and Simcoe. Uh, 100% pale malt. A, a great, great beer. Extremely well made, as you would expect uh, coming from a brewery owned by the legendary Don Harris who uh, started his career at uh, Deschutes, went on to McMinimans, he went on to Full Sail, and now he's got his own place, Ecliptic. And believe me, it's a darn good beer. Try it if you can find it. There you go. Veterans opening up their own places, which is something we need to talk about at some point, because well, brewers are becoming more and more like head chefs. We did talk about that a little bit about a year or so ago, but I think it's going to be time to revisit the subject pretty soon. Yes, but let's talk about current beer trends yes, happening indeed. in the beer world right now. The Great American Beer Festival has announced details of this year's competition, and if you didn't know, for pretty much the whole time, IPA has been the biggest category. Anybody shocked? Bueller? Anybody? But this year, they just announced that IPA, well, that IPA has been dethroned as the most entered, and it's Denny's favorite that has taken it over. The hazy IPA. And, and let's be clear here. It is normal IPA that's been dethroned. There's still lots of IPA there, just IPA that isn't really IPA. 
Right. So the West Coast or, or American IPA has been overthrown as the most entered. And according to the GBF, there are 706 juicy or hazy IPAs as the category is officially called. And it's broken down to 414 juicy or hazy IPAs, 131 hazy pale ales, and 161 juicy or hazy double IPAs. So I think that's a whole category that Denny doesn't want anything to do with. Uh, yeah, well, that's that's true. Um, but what really is, is astounding is the way it compares to the numbers of other beers. There's like, what, two or three times more hazy beers than there are of any other single style? Yeah, absolutely. It's just mind-boggling. But it shows the very clear trend in the market, or, or at least what everyone's super stoked about. Yeah, and I think I think right now is the key. Uh, I'm going to be real curious to see where it is five years from now. <laughs> well, some of it's going to depend upon what happens with hot prices. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I mean, I just I just keep wondering if people are going to burn out on these if they're just like a, a flash in the pan kind of thing. Uh, and don't write in and tell me how wrong I am. I'm just I'm just wondering. Well, some things. Things will change over time, yep, as yep. things do. And speaking of things that probably should be a flash in the pan. <laughs> and things that change over time and probably shouldn't. There's a whole new trend that's been happening with lots of news articles coming out with brewers' cans exploding on the shelves. Because some brewers are playing around with late fruit additions for things that aren't quite fermented by the time they go in the can. So there's a whole series of cans coming out now where the cans are marked, Keep refrigerated! Keep refrigerated! Keep cold! Because they have sweet fruit additions and whatnot in there. Most recent victim of this was a collaboration between Evil Twin and Hoof Hearted called That's What Happens When You Let Dad Out of the House, which is a sour IPA with pineapple, guanabara, vanilla, and milk sugar. It says right there on the can, you know, keep refrigerated, but that didn't stop some of them from exploding. <laughs> okay, so... I, I got I got to make a couple comments here. I, you know, it, I just wouldn't be me without it. Number one, I'm looking at some pictures of cans here, and I don't think these are from them. But these cans say smoothie style Berliner Weiss. That is the last thing in the world that I want. I want a Berliner Weiss to be uh, to, to be crisp and refreshing. I don't want it smoothie style. If you do, fine, you can drink it. The other thing, which is less of an opinion and more of a fact is that these guys are supposed to be brewers who know what they're doing. Do they, do they not realize that adding fruit with sugars into it, into a closed environment is going to cause fermentation and explosions? Do you understand this? I think it's called everyone's gotten used to having that over the dock market where those hazy IPAs disappear super quick. So some of the brewers are in the habit of now of, Hey, our beers are going to be consumed super fast. Uh, but the problem is you're depending upon a lot on your supply chain, uh, obeying the instructions on your package, which good old professional brewers should know is not everything they can depend on. Your beer is going to be sitting in warm trucks on somebody's warm shelf. It's going to be abused and used in in ways that you can't control. <laughs> yeah, right. So, yeah, to me, it's the combination of the attitude of we don't want our beers to be shelf turds and you need to take care of this beer and this particular thing. This particular thing just doesn't work well in conjunction with that. Now, if this was something they were selling off the dock directly to the customer saying, here, drink this thing in the next week or so, or it's not our fault, that would be one thing. But I think sending beers like this out into the retail chain is asking for trouble. Well, and it, it seems like, number one, it makes it very difficult 
to produce because you have to gauge your production very accurately so that you don't have beer building up in your warehouse uh, that's going to be exploding by the time you can get it to your consumers. Oh, but come on. Let's face it. This stuff is specialty niche of a specialty niche. I mean, this isn't the kind of thing they're going to be making regularly to have an inventory to ship out. Oh, oh, I I agree, but it's still the same issue, you know. Even if even if you're selling it off the dock, you know, a six pack at a time to customers, you, you certainly don't want to overproduce because then then you're you're just setting yourself up for failure. The other thing, again, you know, in this article we're looking at says here are a few tips to prevent exploding cans of fruit beer. Keep it cold. Low temperatures prevent yeast from becoming active. No, they don't. And any home brewer knows that. They slow it down. But uh, I learned this lesson many years ago when everyone was encouraging me to uh, store saved yeast slurry in mason jars in the fridge, put it in there, crank the lid down. Uh, two weeks later, I was picking glass shards out of my refrigerator. Because cold temperatures do not stop the yeast. They will slow it down, but it's going to keep fermenting. And damn it, people, your commercial brewers, you should know this. Like I said, I'm I'm all for p- people having fun and playing around, but I th- I think the lunacy in this one is sending it out into the retail chain. Also, Denny, I don't know if you know, but they don't usually sell these beer by the six-pack. It's usually by the four-pack. Well, yeah, sure. Of of course, what whatever you know, it, it it doesn't really make any difference. The point remains the same. I know, but I like to tease you when you get something wrong. <laughs> well, you should just take a lesson from me and keep your mouth shut because I I don't tease you, right? I forget giving you a withering stares, bad radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I got the withering stare, even audio. There you go. Uh, the powers I've learned from my mom. And our next article comes from the Daily Beast and previous guest and friend of ours on the podcast, Lou Bryson. It's his mid-year report, and he covers both whiskey and beer, but in this case, we're only going to talk about the beery things. And he gives us a list of things he wants to see more and things he wants to see less of. And amongst the dues was more regional beer character. And he was talking about things specifically like Katarina Sour, Florida Vice, New England IPA, etc., etc. Like, yeah, hey, let's grow that regional beer idea. That's right. And one thing he says here is, I love it when brewers in an area develop a beer that's unique, which catches on with local drinkers. I don't love it so much when every damn brewer across the country feels they have to make that style, too. Right on, Lou. You tell him, bud. Cranky people. Stop grabbing what everyone else does. Lead. Don't follow. Right on. Uh, Lou, Lou goes on to talk about Fest beers, one of his favorites and ours. It's not too late. It's still August. Get it on. Make one. Don't worry about being traditional or authentic. Just make some damn good beer. And, you know, you're seeing why Lou is probably my favorite beverage writer. He's uh, insightful, he's curmudgeonly, and he's entertaining. Cranky likes cranky. That's right. And then, of course, he gives the cranky side of the house and says, don't do this or do less of it. Uh, his first one was Mimk beers, and aka beers that are designed to taste like a, a Moscow Mule or a gin and tonic or some sort of cocktail. He's like, if I want a cocktail, I'll have the cocktail. If I want to have a beer, I'll have a beer. I think you guys know where I fall on this line. Yeah, well, he says, for that matter, an iced tea beer, a chocolate donut beer, a pizza beer, a strawberry rhubarb beer. Who's making this stuff? Willy Wonka? And boy, Lou, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. 
hey, I make some of this beer. Well, there you go. And then coming back to the exploding cans we just talked about, Lou's last peeve is shelf bombs. Talking about all those lightly filtered, hazy beers everyone has. Yep, they're going to be bad on the shelf, so stop that. (sighs) Yep. And he mentions the brewers making these beers need to take a refresher course on processing and sanitation. That was kind of my point too, damn it, people. You are brewers. You should know what's going on. All right, curmudgeons. Well, you know what? Lou says right here, I'm going to get some get-off-my-lawn blowback on this one. And uh, I, I agree. And Lou, I think that you and I are both used to that. Well, that's what happens when you spend your time... With, well, let me, let me just say right now, with great age comes great wisdom. What happened to you? <laughs> Touche, bud. <laughs> and of course, it's not just craft brewers running afoul of some of this stuff. Miller Coors just announced that they had a line of beers that, frankly, I'd never heard of, called Two Hats, that were designed to target millennial drinkers. Yep. The vaunted millennials everyone's chasing. And they had a light beer that was both lime flavor and another one that was pineapple flavored. And the interesting part to me was that they killed the, both the brands in just six months. Yeah. And one reason probably we didn't hear about these and hardly anyone else did either is that being for millennials, they decided they were going to go outside the normal advertising channels and only advertise them via social media. So uh, unless you're one of those people who's on Twitter 18 hours a day or maybe even 30 hours a day, you probably didn't hear about them at all. Or maybe listens to podcasts. Uh, who knows, man? Uh, we listen to podcasts. We hadn't heard about them. But so any, anyway, yeah, Miller, Miller tried to go the, the fruit, soda, beer route to catch millennials. And guess what? It didn't work. Yep. It seems to happen all the time, but hey, Miller and those guys can afford to throw money at a line like this and go, eh, never mind, didn't work. They could throw money at us instead. I ain't too proud. (laughs) All right, I I think that's enough beer news. I think maybe it's time for us to go talk about beery-type brewing stuff. Wow, all righty, that's good with me, man. We're going to take a quick break while we finish up these beers, and when we come back, we'll be in the library. So please stick around. Savor some of Y-East's exclusive Belgian strains with the Belhiche Zomer private collection this summer. Backed by popular demand, the Forbidden Fruit, Trappist-style blend, and the Canadian-Belgian ale strains encompass the entire spectrum of yeast properties and are distinguished by their coveted ester and phenolic profiles. Take advantage of these strains to brew a full range of Belgian styles, from traditional everyday drinking to the bigger and more complex. The versatility of this collection is perfect for savoring all summer long. These strains are available July through September at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at yeastlab.com. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. 
More info at BrewersPublications.com. We're sitting here in the comfy chairs in the library, and we're going to be talking about a really fascinating paper by Ryan Fields, the head brewer and blender at Beechwood Blendery in Long Beach, near Drew. And he wrote a really fascinating and in-depth paper on brewing beer in America inspired by the Belgian Lambic tradition, basically trying to analyze what it is that makes Belgian Lambic Belgian Lambic and what he might be able to do to come up with something close to it huh for those of you who don't know beachwood brewing company originally started as beachwood barbecue down in seal beach and then they opened up a brewery up in long beach and headed up by one of my favorite homebrewers turned pro julian trago who's won more medals than i can count including the award for gabf's best brew pub of the year and they opened up some side projects along the way including one called the blendery now the blendery is a 4000 square foot building just around the corner from the main brewing facility for the brew pub it's it has its own independent brewery in there and barrels galore and all sorts of fun stuff to play around with and get sour on they literally went into a completely different building just to avoid any sort of cross contamination issues smart plan they started in 2014 and they started this project working with Cantillon and a couple of others going through and talking what is lambic beer versus what are what are americans doing so the really cool thing in this article it talks all about all these different processes they use to make warts because what they're trying to do is figure out what makes belgian sour beers belgian sour beers and what's different in american beers and what we can learn from each other so they started everything with basically a simple wort of 65 percent pilsner and 35 percent unmalted wheat they ran it through a couple of different mash series, a couple of different cooling processes like force chilling with a heat exchanger versus laying it go into a cool ship to cool down overnight. They did all sorts of data recording, like actual proper data recording, did genetic sequencing on the stuff that they found, and they did bottling and had all those beers analyzed at New Belgium's very nice uh, beer lab. They tested triturable acidity. Uh, what sort of organic acids were in the beer, just really kind of gathering together a whole bunch of characteristics and trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, we definitely think that if you have any interest at all in sour beer, you want to dig into this article because it's... There's there's a lot of data there, and it's it's really fascinating. My, it's only my, eight pages long, but it is it is crammed in those eight pages with useful information. Jam-packed! Yeah, Probably my only disappointment with it is that they spend little to no time talking about how the beers actually taste in comparison to each other. And personally, I would have liked to have heard a lot more of that. I mean, this this paper is just full of numbers and graphs and stuff like that. And that's great. It makes for a very interesting way to compare things. But I would have personally appreciated hearing more about how the flavors of these beers compared. But, you know, it, it is what it is, and I guess Drew will just have to send me some so I can taste it myself. Oh, they're great beers. 
they did come to some conclusions like, you know, we need to switch up to using more aged hops. And then they decided, oh, well, we've got to switch to using less of the aged hops in terms of overall quantity just to keep the IBUs down. And they needed to blend in some barrels with acetic acid in them. Uh, something that they talked about earlier in the paper was that they really were careful about the amount of acetic acid and ethyl acetate and other things that they were allowing into the bottles. So they decided that in order to get closer to that more rounded Belgian profile, we need to do these two things. They then said in the 2018 samples that they've done that the acid levels are higher, the IBUs are lower, and they're much closer to the traditional Belgian profile. So there's some practical information in there as well as just a bunch of, hey, a bunch of chemical names. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we'll put a link to this on the website so you guys can check it out yourselves. But uh, like I said, if nothing else, it's a great example of how you conduct this kind of study. Alrighty, we're going to get out of the library, we're going to head over to the brewery, and we're going to be talking malt and hops once we get there, so please stick around. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. We're in the brewery now, surrounded by piles of gleaming stainless steel, don't we wish? And uh, we're going to talk about uh, wiremen having a hot time in Bamberg. Yeah, so unfortunately, it looks like, well, if you guess, your German malt's about to come a little more expensive. Because according to articles that we've seen, the uh, Bamberg maltery of wiremen caught on fire. And they say that the the roof the roof truss of the Bamberg Malt House and uh, was on fire on Thursday morning, and shortly after three o'clock, the fire broke out in the kiln of the malting plant, and it burned for several hours. Uh, so, and it was in the city center. Numerous firefighters hit it. Took them uh, several hours to finally get it under control. And well, they're they're still doing an investigation as to the cause. So nothing there yet. But the damage they said is probably in the high six digit range. 
And I assume that's euros? Yeah, yeah, high six digits of euros. So we're talking some real money there. So I would fully expect that our our wireman malts are going to become a little more dear. So uh, I heard it was like about 30 tons of malt that went up. And I was trying to do some quick math in my head. So what, there's like uh, 200, 200 bags to a ton? 50-pound sacks. It's 40 sacks. Right. So times 30, that's 1,200 sacks. Which, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, is not all that much, right? I mean, no, it certainly but, doesn't but, seem like it to me. But the I think the real cost is going to be in the damage to the facilities. Oh, yeah, definitely so, definitely so. But people are saying, oh, my God, there's not going to be any German malt. And assuming that uh, it was 30 tons and assuming that our math is correct, 1,200 bags of malt is probably like one order for one brewery, right? Quite possibly. But, hey, you know, maybe they'll just sell it as smoked malt. <laughs> when I first heard about this going on in Bamberg, I thought, well, how perfect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Suddenly, uh, suddenly, rock beers get a lot more boost. Yeah, uh. <laughs> really, everything's a rock beer now. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's kind of unfortunate. But it, I mean, look, keep in mind, you know, historically speaking, any place that's dealing with grain or flour or anything else has historically been an extraordinarily dangerous place for fire and explosions. So, fortunately, it doesn't seem like anybody got hurt and nothing exploded, but things did catch on fire. Yeah, man, I, I remember when I was growing up in Iowa and uh, silos would explode at times because of the dust from the corn and, and the various feed in them. So, yeah, any, anything like that can be a real danger. Uh, not not to mention, uh, remember a few years ago when uh, the hot bales were exploding at YCH? Oh, yeah, from the, yeah, from the combustion, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the, the uh, Columbus... They got too hot inside. Well, the Columbus hops had so much oil that they were spontaneously combusting. and There were pictures of 200-pound bales of hops being shot 50 and 100 feet into the air during these explosions. Uh, brewing is a dangerous business, man. It's it's kind of like the hop equivalent of, uh, you know, leaving rags with linseed oil on them. <laughs> balled up. Don't do that. Yeah, right. Don't do Don't that. Don't do that, please. Uh, and while we're talking about Wireman, for the last three years, uh, Wireman has had a director of, you know, sort of brewing operations and distilling operations who, you know, is no stranger to the American microbrew scene, Denise Jones, who, you know, for years worked at Third Street Ale Works down the, down the road from uh, Russian River and a bunch of other places as well. She's been around the industry for a long time and has always been an amazing brewer. And so she was actually in Germany for the past three years working for Fireman directly and just announced that she is moving back to the U.S. and specifically to Boulder, Colorado, to become the director of brewing operations and distilling for Fate Brewing Company. So uh, Denise is leaving Wireman and coming back to the States to bless us with more of her great beer. Now, that should be very interesting to see what happens there, huh? Yeah. Well, and I'm not kidding. Like, uh, I've always tracked around where she was, where she's been. She started, I think, with Moylan's and, you know, worked there for a long time, then did Third Street. And when she was running Third Street, at least in those early years, you know, Third Street's beers were right up there on par with sort of Russian River, right in that neck to neck race. So it was very nice to go to San Rosa during that period. Wow, that sounds great, man. Yep. So welcome back, Denise. Good luck at fate. <laughs> really? And in a couple of weeks, I'll be heading up to Yakima for. Hop and Brew School at Yakima Chief, formerly YCH Hops, and the Hop Harvest, which is always just such a cool, cool experience. 
and uh, Yakima Chief just recently put out their hop report for uh, for this time of year, just before uh, harvest time. They say that for the most part, the weather has cooperated pretty well to produce what appears to be a, a normal hop crop. Uh, we've had really hot, dry weather here, but the irrigation reservoirs have held out and uh, pretty much been able to handle everything. Uh, they say triple-digit temperatures that we're currently experiencing. I believe I saw that it was 106 in Yakima yesterday. They say that uh, the heat could cause some bloom and mite issues, but growers are optimistic about a normal hop in most varieties. One thing that this report kind of gives me an overall impression of is some of the, the baby hop plants are having a, a tough time this year. Uh, the more mature plants, not quite so much. Uh, centennial hops uh, are expected to have a significantly lower yield than the 2017 crop. And uh, let me tell you, centennial hops, when you go to Yakima and you talk to the growers about uh, varieties that they wish they didn't have to grow, centennial is the one that everybody raises their hand for. Uh, there are always problems growing centennial, apparently, but that doesn't mean that they're going to give up because brewers want centennial, so uh, they're just going to tough it out. But uh, there are some real issues. Uh, cascades have a high degree of variability, but overall yields are expected to be near normal. Baby CTZ growth is disappointing, but the mature ones look good. HBC 62 babies look spotty, which is too bad because Drew and I have had a chance to work with some of these HBC 682 experimental hops, and they are really, really stunning. And I'm, I'm looking forward to having them around in greater supply. The Oregon nugget crop looks very good. There have been uh, viroid issues with the autonom hops, but uh, new plantings look really good. Citra is now the leading variety in the Pacific Northwest. That's really interesting, based on the uh, acreage report. So while a lot of the baby hops uh, are looking very spotty, Citra babies, which have been planted recently to uh, meet the increased demand, look better than they have in years. So if you're a Citra fan, you can take some heart in the fact that uh, in the coming years, Citra is going to be in good supply, and the mature Citra crop this year should be normal. Simcoe acreage is down, uh, and they, that's because they are kind of tearing out some of the older plantings and uh, replanting with viroid-free rootstock. Uh, mosaic acreage is stable, and the crop in general looks average. So it doesn't look like we're going to have like a super year for hops, but it doesn't look like it's going to be a bad year either. As far as uh, everything I can see from here, we're going to have pretty much normal yield on most varieties. Yep, and it also sounds like it's a bad year to be a baby. <laughs> yeah, man, I would not want to be a baby hop this year. Yep, be kind to babies. <laughs> All right, I think that's enough brewing business. Why don't we? Uh, why don't we go lounge for a bit? That's a great idea, man. We're gonna head over to the lounge and talk to our good friend Jim Leininger and have him tell us about his reiterated mashed stout. So please stick around and check out this great interview. We'll be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. 
jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. It's time for us to lounge. The comfy chairs are out. I'm in my house coat. I have a beer in hand. I'm not wearing How pants. Much? That's an image I don't need. <laughs> Thank you. But here's an image that you do need. Uh, we're about to actually sit down, and uh, you're going to hear us talk with Jim Leiniger, who is a friend of ours online, and you know, is a great and wonderful brewer. And he actually heard us talking about the redoed mashing concept. You know, I'll while ago uh, actually even before the brew files episode came out on it yeah and got us a sample of a beer of his to try that he did with the reader mashing and so what you're going to hear now is us talking about that beer and more importantly tasting it that's right it was uh, an imperial stat that jim made it was delicious and i'm just going to warn you right now um the vagaries of the internet have made the audio a little rough at spots, but uh, it's a it's a really interesting and fun interview, and most of it's pretty good. So hang in there in the rough spots, and uh, you'll pick up some great info from Jim, and uh, probably be drooling when you hear us tasting these beers. Indeed, we've got Mr. Jim Leininger here, and uh, Jim is a longtime friend uh, online on the AHA forum. And he recently tried a reiterated mash, which uh, we've talked about on the brew files, and sent us some of the beer to try. And uh, that's the part that I'm looking forward to. But uh, before we get to that, Jim, how long you been brewing, man? Uh, let's see. 2012, I started brewing. I'll tell you, backing up just a little bit, actually, um, I'm the last child of an old man, so... Um, my dad was 40 when I was born, but he always brewed something, uh, grew up on a farm here in Washington state. And so while I wasn't doing the brewing, I've been involved in brewing kind of all my life, but as far as like having my own control and learning my own lessons and actually doing it myself, that started just a little while ago, 2012. Wow, that is really cool, man. So do you have a favorite thing to brew? Well, uh, not really. I, I have uh, three or four different things that, that I brew kind of on a rotation, you know, whether the my wife likes a, a pale ale that I, might, that I make and, you know, like that, that I will repeat. But kind of my – I'll tell you the thing I like to do is brew something new, something – Either process-wise, I'm learning something, putting it to the test, or maybe a style I have I find around here. To, it, to me, uh, what makes sense about homebrewing is to make stuff you can't find. Um, I live here in Goldendale, the Goldendale area of Washington, eastern Washington. I'm about an hour south of Yakima, which would make uh, people around the world think that I live in the center of the brewing universe, but that's not true. Where I live is very rural, and so therefore it's kind of a beer desert. Um, I have to travel somewhere to go get beer that is not just uh, you know, clear and flavorless. 
So uh, I like to try to make things that are not readily available. Wow. You know, and I, again, you know, I live kind of like in the, in the region at least, and I've been up there and I would not have guessed that Goldendale was a beer desert. Well, it has been, I'll, I'll add that we, uh, a new brewery, it's very small and it was, um, it's sole proprietor ownership, uh, husband and wife team that were home brewers. I want to say, um, in the Midwest, somewhere around the Great Lakes area, I've only briefly met them at first. I was skeptical. Because this is uh, the center of redneck uh, heartland right where I live. Mm-hmm. And um, so Keystone is very popular. Um, they were <laughs> opening a they're opening a funky Belgian brewery, and I thought, I wonder how that's gonna work. And actually I uh, gave it about a year and I went in myself and I was Really surprised. Uh, the brewery's called Dwinell in Goldendale, Washington. First brewery ever, I believe, in Goldendale. And they're doing a fantastic job, I thought. Oh, man. Well, see, there you go. At least they have some place local you can get good beer. That's right. If I can't get it here at my house, I can get it there. <laughs> so what <laughs> kind of system do you brew on, Jim? I have uh, currently, uh, well, I had a three- vessel system um small i I make six gallon batches seems like an odd number but um that way i don't have to worry so much about pulling troub off the bottom of a fermenter and whatnot i I end up in a five gallon corny keg but i but i target six gallons um so i have uh what i do now is i have a two two kettle system and i've gone to um no sparge. Uh, I did batch sparge for a long time. And then I, you know, I'm always trying to learn new things and I don't know that no sparge is new. No sparge is probably very old actually, but it was new to me. And I found that, oh, well, it didn't make a drastic difference. I think it improves the quality of the, of the malt, uh, contribution in, in my beers and many of my beers, I like malt. Um, I also like hops. I also like fermentation characters. So that's what I was going for. It seems to be easy. And and if it doesn't improve the quality of the beer, it certainly is at least as good. And so that's what I've been doing lately. Um, Normally I make two batches uh, on a brew day they may be two different beers but they'll end up being the same style of fermentation in other words uh, i wouldn't have a lager and a belgian in the same fermentation chamber that probably wouldn't work um but if the temperature for fermentation is the same that's all i care about so and that's what i normally do and then uh, i do closed transfer here lately i've found that Believe it or not, I kind of think that helps uh, longevity of the beer. Sure. I, would, I used to argue that a lot, but now I don't. Okay. And I've gone the lazy way. I hate um, So it's all kegged. The bottles that you guys have, they were keg conditioned and then um, beer gunned and cool. UPS to you. So. so, Drew, you've been awful quiet. You got anything you want to ask Jim before we get into these beers? I think we should do a reiteration of reiterated mashing just before we dig into this. So the whole idea here with this beer is that this is a beer made of 
two mashes, but one wort, correct? Yes, it is. So why don't you briefly describe the process that you used? Sure. Um, so this is something that I, my discovery of it, I, my understanding is it's been around for a long, long time. This is not something new, in other words. It's certainly not something I invented. Um, I was listening to another podcast and... Wait, 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 hold on. Excuse me. You listen to other podcasts? I know, I know. I, I told you there's no holds barred here, so I listen <laughs> okay. to all of yours. I don't listen to all of theirs. Do, does that make you feel better? It does, Jim. You're you're <laughs> forgiven because you're such a nice guy. Good, good. As long as we feel, that's oh, all. Yeah. I'm all about that. So. It's all touchy feely here, man. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, they're talking about this. Um, Oh, what did they call it? Uh, I can't even, polyguile, I think, instead of party guile. Um, so more, many guiles, many, and I don't know yeah. whether or not they're using the terminology. Doesn't matter. I've heard it called iteration. I've heard it called polyguile. I've, I call it double mesh. So whatever. Uh, so what you're doing is you're taking, uh, the goal is to make a big beer that's drinkable, that doesn't require uh, any sparging that doesn't require a long voice. So what you do is you have your, your strike water. You're, you, you're starting off with all the water that you, so you have a large grain bill and you split it in half and you mash the first half and then you remove the grain or remove the, the mash, remove the, you know, runoff. And then you, mash again with the second half and instead of using water you are mashing with the wort uh first i was like how in the heck would that work <laughs> but it does and i'm told i'm told that you can actually do this a third time uh and maybe even a fourth or a fifth time i believe uh from what I, uh, john blickman has done it three times in a row and he believes he still hasn't reached max sugar. So I don't know that I would need to make a beer that was uh, 20% alcohol, but <laughs> it worked well, I believe, for this for these couple that I brewed. So do you, do you heat up the wort before you use it for the second mash, or do you just use it at the runoff temperature? Well, I'll tell you what I do. I, I heat the water to the strike temperature just using the same formulas that I would if I was making mm -hmm. any other beer. So this one is um, 10 gallons of water, and the total grain bill is about 28 and a half pounds. So uh, for the sake of argument of just talking about the process, let's say that it was, let's say it was 30 pounds. So you'd have 15 pounds going into 10 gallons of water. Mm -hmm. um, you would just calculate what your temp needs to be. Let's say that it's 165 to hit. 158. Okay. Great. So you would heat your water to that and then you mash it. In. And then uh, when you're done, when that has uh, converted and it, it has extracted all of the sugars, then you would, if you were brewing egg, you just lift the, the grain out. Okay? Or in my case, I pump my sweet wort over to my boil kettle mm -hmm. and then I dump out the mash down. Okay. Now, it just so happens for me that in that transfer uh, to a cold kettle that I, 
when I got the new grain in and ready, I see that uh, I'm pretty close on my next strike temp. So Great. you would think that it would lose some temp, and it does. It does lose some temperature, and in, in, in a minute or at some point, we can go into uh, what I've found with help from others, uh, okay. how to run mass temperatures on these. You can actually get some benefit from the way that you uh, run the mash temperatures. Okay. Wow. So I, this going to have, I, the first mash is at a hundred for a short period of time. Uh, for me, I'm reaching full conversion and extraction at about 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I move it over. I move the liquid over to my boil kettle just to get it out of the way. I dump those spent grains. Uh, you could put them aside and, and make up small beer with it. Sure. But I don't. Um, and then I put the new grain in, and then I pump that wort back over. The target now is about 145 mash temp. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the lower shooting for those uh, uh, short chains, right? Right. Are you following me? Short chain sure. triggers. Okay. So now you've got uh, some short chain, and you've got, uh, some long chain from that first mash. Now you pump it over and you're mashing at 145 for like 90 minutes. Uh, mm-hmm. I've found that when you're at low temps, uh, chewing away, making short chains, that that time is a consideration. Okay, sure. we're not just yep. converting to sugar and extracting; we're also um, reducing those uh, long chain sugars down to short chain. Right. So. So the second mash with the second half of the grain is mashed at 145. That's what I do. Another person could try to do whatever. And just as a as a to throw it out there, I'm not at all saying this is how you have to do it. I would like everybody who tries this to go ahead and feel free to experiment with any part of it, and and maybe you'll discover something that will help all of us. I would yeah. say that if there's one thing we've all learned about homebrewing, that there is no single right way to do anything in it. And you know what? That's what makes it so much fun and so interesting. Okay. We're yeah. not just putting together like a thousand pieces. There's one way to do it. I bought a puzzle. I put it together. I'm done. Right. Right. Um, there's so many ways to put this brewing puzzle. Yeah, man. You know, it, it's it's all about what you enjoy and what your goals are. Yeah. Oh, oh, totally. Totally. I hope I covered it well enough, but I'm not the master of this. I'm just trying to share what I did. I was going to say, man, you know, what, what you did obviously worked, and it's probably about time mm-hmm. that we open these beers so we can taste what you did. Yeah. Now, before you do, I just want to say um, they bounced around. Yours went straight to your house. Right. Uh, Drew's went on a tour of uh, the California coast. I think it took almost two weeks for to get there. Oh, man. So at this at this precise moment, the, the real test here is in my bottling sanitation um, because – uh, it's been the beers that you opened. I made in January, and they took a, uh, a hobo journey of the West Coast to get there. So, <laughs> well, hopefully, they, they survived it. 
they've been in the fridge since they arrived. So here, let's let's see what happens here. Right, and and as we pour these, it, can yeah, you tell people not... what the style is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would call it an American Imperial Stout with English roots. Let's say so. Um, it's it is a big old Imperial Stout. Uh, we're still has at... still has plenty of carbonation. Oh, good, good. Uh, hopefully not enough to shoot it all over the ceiling. Oh, oh what a wonderful aroma. Oh, man. Mmm. Chocolate first off and a little bit of roastiness, kind of like a little coffee in the background. Uh, oh, boy. Drew, what do you what do you think? Oh, yeah, and I'm also getting kind of an herbally hop character to it. And uh, yep. some really nice, you know, kind of those high fruit tones, but not not anything... You know, like, hey, you're you're way too Esther Ford. And by the way, I mean, like, particularly since this did take that long journey to me, I'm also not getting any sort of oxidation effects. But listeners yeah, of the pod, I mean, listeners of the Brew Files will remember that I talked with Andy Black of Yorkshire Square Brewing Company about reiterated or double mashing, and he had a export stout that he had done that way. But this is like a much bigger, much richer version of that Castle Dangerous stout that he served me. And having just taken a sip, I think uh, richer is exactly the right way to describe it, man. This beer has incredible malt depth to it. Without being cloying, without being overly sweet. No, no, Jim, you got the balance just perfectly right there, man. There's enough hops to keep it from being like like dessert, you know? Well, cool. Yeah, I'm, glad I- it, I'm glad it made it there. Well, and and so how how yeah, big was this uh, beer? Uh, this was original gravity of ten one hundred, and I want to say for some reason I don't have it right here in front of me. I want to say that it finished about ten twenty five. So we're looking at uh, nine point eight percent estimated, you know, calculated ABV. I just call it ten percent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't have the palate to tell the difference. So one of the one of the things that I a challenge about big beers that that I enjoy ma- in making them is that I don't want you to think it's a ten percent beer, you know. Right. I don't want you to open it, take a sip, and go, "Wow, that's huge!" Right? Yeah. Because uh, that might indicate that it's got like some fusel alcohols and and stuff like that, and. So I like to bake, make my bigger beers kind of sneak up on you. And that's exactly what this one is I, I would doing. think, hey, yeah. I also sent them to you in a in that kind of German 500 mil. Um, we'll see if the audience can tell if you make it through that 500, uh, if they agree yeah. that it actually is 10. Well, I mean, I can tell you as as I'm sitting here and I'm and I'm drinking it, like, I mean, I get that that nice big warmth, you know, right down the middle of the chest. So I know, I know there's something here and, but it's, it's dangerously smooth. Yeah. I was going to say, you, you don't get that warmth until, yeah. you know, a few seconds after you finish drinking it. Uh, and also the roast. I mean, a lot of times when people are going yeah. big on these beers, you know, you get a lot of roast character in here and the roast is I mean, exactly where I want it to be. It's there, but it's not like, I'm drinking a cup of black coffee with some that's been sitting on the burner for a couple hours. You know, and I'm getting the most beautiful right. creamy beige head on this too, man. It is just it's it's a beautiful beer, Jim. Well, thank you. I 
am kind of shocked myself for as big as it is, how long that head sticks around. Yeah. The alcohol does uh, not seem to be knocking I it down. I think that's, yeah, I think the alcohol does uh, that. And I wonder, I don't know what else might be playing in that. So, um, what do you think about the finish? Does it, 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 does it taste 1025? No, no, not, no. I, it's I mean, got a very dry finish to it, doesn't it, Drew? Yeah, I think the key is that you have enough hops in here and enough roast bite and enough alcohol that the 1025 doesn't matter. I had a friend who used to do a, right. a, a mega stout, is what we always jokingly refer to, it because it started up around 1150. And he had one version of it wow. that stuck. Yeah, he had one version of it that stuck at just below 1050. And the thing was Dark Lord enough in its gargantuan proportions that the 1050 <laughs> did not matter. <laughs> so well, you know, it would matter if you drank a six pack of them, I would think, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> if you could drink a six pack of those, I'd be impressed. Really? I mean, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's 100 gravity points that it fermented down. So there's, that's going to be intense. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jim, wow. have, you got, have you got any other beers like this in the plans? Well, I do. I've got one in the keg. Brewed on, uh, it was like the last week of January. I can't remember the exact day. But uh, the fermentation is, was a mind blow to me. So I I use the sort of the shaken, not stirred method. Uh, right. For those that don't know what that is, you're take, I'm taking a, you take a smack pack or... Uh, a white yeast, you know, you take your yeast pitch from the store and you are not building up yeast cell count on a stir plate or some other matter. You are just concerned with getting those yeast into an active state. The way that I do it is I take a hundred or a thousand mils or actually around 1200, between a thousand and 1200 mils of 1040 starter. I oxygenate it, and I pitch my smack pack to it. I do that the morning of brew day. And when the beer is done and chilled and in the fermenter and in the fermentation chamber, I oxygenate it, and I pitch that into the beer. So this is, uh, at best, uh, 100 mils of yeast from the store that was sitting in a starter for about seven hours and then pitched to the beer. And, and it was terminal gravity in nine days. Oh, man. Thank you, Mark Vandetta, for giving us all an easier and better way to do things. Can I ask, have you done this same recipe without the reiterated mash? No, I have not. Uh, I have. It's... Let's say this, it's related to my my normal uh, stout. It's related in that it's the same roast. It's a pound and a half of roasted barley and a pound of British chocolate, the 425 lit. And the rest of the beer is, uh, the base malt is Simpson Golden Promise, uh, best pale or premium pale, and then some best malt. Uh, I like the breadiness from the dark Munich. 
So I can, uh, we haven't gone over the recipe yet. I can do that if you feel like I should. Yeah, give, give us kind of a quick rundown, and then we'll get the whole thing from you via email and post it on the website for people. But kind of give us a quick rundown of well, what's in it. Yeah, it's it's uh, Simpsons Golden Promise. It's Best Malls Dark Munich. Uh, and then it's Roasted Barley and UK uh, Chocolate Malt. That's it for the grain bill. Um, the hops are... It was uh, bittered with at first wort hop. This one, because I guess I didn't believe that it was actually going to work. Uh, and when I saw the, um, the uh, not hydrometer, but uh, refractometer readings, I was like, wow, it did work. <laughs> uh, I called an audible and I threw some challenger in at 60 uh, just to make sure that I had enough bitterness to, to support this guy. And then at 10 minutes, uh, it's got EKG, and here you go, Danny, Fuggles. <laughs> so EKG and Fuggles. I, I forgive you, my So, um, yeah, exactly. You know, I'm not a fan either, but sometimes they work. Um, yeah, so, I'll... and then it's, uh, it's one smack pack of 1450. Danny's favorite. Fourteen fifty. Um, I am honored. Uh, yeah, there you go. And then uh, the the fermentation temperature profile. I chill it in four days ish. Um, I change. I up it to sixty four. Uh, it's just four days. Bump it up four, and then four more days. Bump it up another four. So it finishes off at sixty eight. And the idea there was to try to avoid the fusel creation at the beginning of fermentation that's but at the plan. same time increasing temp so the, yeah at the same time i'm increasing temp as they slow down you're giving them a happier environment but not blowing it out like you would with a saison you know i'm i wouldn't take this tonight so <laughs> i wouldn't recommend I it, it hit this one hit uh, terminal gravity in nine days it I gave it a few more as I kind of cold crashed it and uh, made sure that it was drop air. Closed transfer is what I use, but transferred to a keg and carbonated for a, a month, and then I bottled it. Wow, man. What, whatever you did. It so uh, people want the full meal deal on this. So this beer, I call it Full Monty. Um, and my uh, recipe software, I use Brewer's Friend. And I've changed this one and another big beer that I did. It's an American barley wine that I call Neck Tattoo, which is uh, 11% IPA, basically. <laughs> uh, using the same methods, just slightly different ingredients. But if you put Click Attack Jim, which is who I am on the AHA forum. Let me just say, if people want to get in touch with Jim, uh, email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com and we'll get you in touch. I just have to say, this is amazing. And it's between, a stunning beer. Well, in between this and the Castle Dangerous, which Danny didn't get to have, I have to say, I mean, at the very least for stouts, this technique works like a charm. Well, and, and especially, I mean, with the um, Golden Promise and the Best Dark Munich, I was going, oh, man, no wonder this had so much malt flavor there to bump up already. 
But Jim, this is this is truly, truly a wonderful beer. And like we said, we're going to make thank sure you. that we get this I'm, recipe in the show notes. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, man. I really enjoyed talking to you, and I really enjoyed drinking your beer. Absolutely. Hey, uh, it was an honor and a privilege. And like we were saying before we went live, um, I feel like I, I know your voice. Uh, and we've been talking, both Drew and, uh, and you, for years now. Yeah but have not yet met in person. When we meet in person, I think there's going to be trouble. Yeah, you know what, man? I, I'm planning on uh, getting a room nearby for the night because I'm not going to be driving anywhere afterwards. <laughs> no, I think uh, 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 if you come up hop, hop school, uh, yeah. if I can't make it there, I'm only, about, I'm only about 10 minutes off of your route to get back home, and, and I'll set you up in the lap of luxury right here at my place and we'll have a beer well uh, we'll talk buddy definitely this has been recorded and so it shall be okay <laughs> all right <laughs> thanks again right. jim have a great hey, thanks evening, again guys man. all thank right you. talk to you later buddy all right uh, thank uh, you man that's awesome right, bye and, and jim this beer is amazing so there was jim talking about his big beers and how he makes them and uh Man, I really admire that guy for just jumping on it and doing it. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a little bit of a painful technique like we talked about in the episode with Andy Black on the brew files, but I think that there's some real value to it when you're going to make a big big beer like, you know, Jim's beer or Andy's beer and you don't want to necessarily want to go, you know, like super big, but you want a big rich character to it. I mean, that beer was not lacking for body and for flavor. Um and I think most importantly is also I know Jim was getting antsy because we'd had those bottles for a little while, kept cold, and he was worried that the beer quality wasn't going to be there. That oh. beer is going to be good for a good long while. Yeah, man. I, I hope that uh, Jim was able to hang on to a few of those bottles because uh, probably like in five years, that's going to be a really, really interesting and nice beer. Yeah, well, I mean, it's really interesting and nice beer right now, but it'll be an interesting an interesting change to see how it's developed. Yeah, right. So, Jim, anyway, thanks a lot, man, for sending us the beers, for uh, sharing your time with us to talk to you, and uh, we hope to do it again, and I hope to maybe have a chance to get together with you when I'm up there in Yakima in a couple weeks. Okay. It's time for us to start winding the show down, and that means it's time for us to answer some of your questions. Yes, we know that we just did a whole episode of questions and answers, but guess what? The questions never stop. And so far, neither of our answers. <laughs> That's right. So please uh, stick around. And when we come back, we'll uh, answer some questions and we'll have a quick tip and something other than beer. So we'll be right back. YCH Hops is a grower-owned global hop company located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms with the world's finest brewers. YCH Hops is thrilled about the release of their newest product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Visit YCHHops.com to find a homebrew retail store near you.
We're back. Thanks for sticking around to help us wrap up the show. We have a few questions here. And uh, the first one comes from Scott Mendes, who says, Thank you for another excellent episode of The Brew Files. It's quite timely as I've been researching and putting together a kettle sour recipe. Now I want to add fruit to it. After the episode, I just had a couple of questions and thought I would get your opinion on them. The Boil. Members of my homebrew club, the Rhode Island Brewing Society, swear on after the lacto-rest and the desired pH is reached to just boil for 15 minutes, but I've seen other people do the full 60. The show notes also said 60 minutes for Ronaldo's recipe. Is there any harm in just doing 15 minutes? Uh, so, Scott, no. There is no harm in just doing 15 minutes. I mean, obviously, there are things that people will have concerns about in terms of hop utilization. But again, boiler device, whatever. And also any sort of raw grain qualities that are DMSE type things. But you'd hope that be kind of resolved. Uh, so, I mean, remember, traditionally, Berliner Weiss itself is only simmered. It's not even really boiled. Uh, because they're they're obviously trying to hold on to lacto and whatnot for later, but yeah, traditionally Blender Vice isn't even boiled super hard. I, I just tend to boil everything sixty minutes because that's how my brain works. But no, you could totally boil this for fifteen minutes and be a okay. Yeah, one of the things that I worked on for the new book, Simple Homebrew, and coming out this spring. Don't forget to go get a copy. Is uh, a, a twenty minute mash and a twenty minute boil, and you know, fifteen minutes is darn close to twenty. There was absolutely no problem with a twenty minute boil. I was making a pale ale, so I found that if I just increased the bittering hops by fifty percent, it came out just the same. So you may need to do that. But to Drew's point, you know, basically you're talking a Berliner Weiss, so it may not yeah, be and, a big deal. And Ronaldo's recipe only has five IBUs, so. <laughs> So that's kind of like when you just uh, wave a hop cone over the kettle, and if the shadow of the hop falls on the kettle, that's enough. Yeah, that's you. You have a cryo hop pellet somewhere in the same zip code. Yeah, that's right, man. That'll do it. And our next question comes from Craig Vol via Facebook, and he says, uh, "Howdy, here's a trick question for you because 2 a.m. is a great time to contemplate yeast. Yes, it is. I often hear how important oxygen is to yeast prior to fermentation. I never oxygenate my wort, and have never had problems." and a few experiments I've heard have found similar results. If oxygen is so necessary for yeast to survive, should the yeast in suspension not continue to consume oxygen post-packaging, thereby negating any oxygen introduced during transfers? I realize if that were the case, oxidized beers would need to be reclassified in the list of flaws, but as I said, it's now 2.30 a.m., and I'm doing my best to avoid thinking about it too much. In a way, Craig, yes, you're right. The yeast will consume some oxygen in the bottle. But I think that where you may be wrong is saying that it would consume enough to negate any oxygen introduced during transfers. Remember, there is very, very little fermentation going on in that bottle when uh, when you prime it and uh, let it carbonate. So, yeah, it will pick up a little bit, but not much. Uh, the... Remember now that, and I say this all the time, the main thing about oxygen and yeast is that the yeast use it to synthesize the sterols that they use to keep the cell walls flexible, which makes it easier for them to bud and reproduce. This this is really the most important. If you're going to be repitching your yeast continuously for a long period of time, something that most home brewers don't do. We may do a few repitches. Uh, you just So you really don't have to worry about that aspect of it too much. But as far as the packaging, yeah, like I said, yeast will take up some O2 in the bottle, but whether it's going to be enough to negate any effects of oxidation previously, I would certainly not uh, 
bet on, not to mention the fact that uh, it's possible that uh, any kind of oxidative reactions will have already happened in the beer, so there's nothing the yeast could do about it anyway. So, you know, yeah, it, it, it's a nice thought at 2 o'clock in the morning, but have a beer and go to bed, man. Yep. So, again, we can get away with murder on the homebrew level because we're not having to do a lot of repitching. We're not having to do a lot of that sort of stuff. But as long as we make our yeast healthy, you know, we pretty much can, you know, skip over oxygen, I think, in a lot of these cases, uh, at least as a absolutely necessary step. But, yeah, oxidative damage. Remember, oxygen is incredibly aggressive. You know, there's a reason why all these things are out there are called oxidizers uh, for a reason. And, yeah, once oxygen does its thing, there ain't no coming back. Yeah, and remember, there are a lot of people out there who go to great pains to avoid, like, even oxygen in the mash and stuff like that. And uh, while I'm not that kind of brewer, there are people who believe in it enough that they are. So, you know... Keep oxygen away to start with, and you'll be better off. Don't think that necessarily that uh, bottle conditioning a beer will take care of it. Not at all. All right. Last question. Last question comes from Takumi Sato, who uh, has questions about one of the big, deep, dark secrets of writing beer books. He says, is there a standard among beer writers with regards to actually having to brew recipes that are included in a book? I couldn't help but notice that in episode 67, Eclectic IPA Land, during the interview with Dick Cantwell, the conversation about a recipe in which he admits having never brewed that beer. While I realize he knows a few things about brewing a great beer, I got to wondering whether other authors include recipes they've never brewed. We may never know for sure, but I found that to be interesting that brewers, especially while newer to the hobby, may lean heavily on the expertise of others. And yes, when I formulate a recipe, it's also a beer I've never brewed, but informed by my goals for the beer and knowledge of the style I'm trying to represent. So not entirely unlike a recipe in a book. Is there an unwritten rule or expectation that recipes in a book are proven in that they've been brewed and known to produce a good beer? Well, <laughs> yeah. Takumi, um, when we were writing our first book together, Experimental Home Brewing, it got to a point where we were getting close to done, and the publisher wanted more recipes in the book. And I just kept saying over and over, but I don't have time to write the book and come up with new recipes and go out and brew and test them and do all that other stuff. And the publisher kind of said, so? And that, that was my introduction to it. And since that time, I found that, yeah, it's it's very common, more common than you would probably think that there are recipes in brewing books that have never been brewed by the people writing them. Yeah, it's, I mean, here's my policy. You know, I mean, there is no unwritten rule about this, but my policy, if I've put in a recipe for something I've never brewed before, is usually I will actually say that I've never brewed it before. Or if it's in a book and, and you know, that's got a longer lifespan, then all of those recipes are basically tweaks on something I've done before. Uh, I've never, at least as far as I can recall, ever just created a beer recipe out of whole cloth and gone, here you go, here's how you make an alt beer or something. You know? I, yeah, that's that's really true, man. Anytime I've done it, it's been based on some other recipe that I've done, so I have a pretty good idea of how it's going to go. But uh, Takumi, no, the answer is that, uh, no, there is no standard, there is no unwritten rule, you do the best you can, and uh, hope that it works out. Uh, well, and what I've thought is great is I've had people come up, 
to me before with versions of a recipe that I've made that I hadn't brewed yeah. and they've all been great. You know what? And I've been, I, I was just thinking about that same thing. One particular event I was at, there was a, a person who brought me a beer and said, Oh, Hey, I brewed your recipe from this book and I want you to try it and tell me how close it is to yours. And my first thought was, my God, I've never brewed that recipe. Uh, but I was really happy to find out when I tasted uh, that person's beer that it was really good. <laughs> so at least, at least I guessed right, and they did a good job of uh, overcoming any of my shortcomings. I agree. So <laughs> I think that's enough questions for today. Why don't we? Uh, why don't we get on on to letting the poor people go back to their beerless day? All right, so uh, to wrap it up here, it's all Drew all the time with both a quick tip and something other. So the quick tip actually comes from the last episode of The Brew Files with Ronaldo. And you know one of the challenges that people face with doing kettle sours is obviously a big portion of that is keeping the wort at around, say, 100 degrees for 24 to 36 to 48 to however many hours you want to do it. And, you know, a lot of people on the internet, you'll read about them, you know, hey, look, you know, I wrap my kettle in saran wrap and then I wrap the, the whole kettle in blankets in order to stay warm, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what I've done in the past. And then Ronaldo was talking about it and said, oh, well, you know, I have one of those brew in one systems like a grandfather. In this case, he has a, a Spiegel Braumeister. And I don't know why this never occurred to me before, but when I asked him about holding the temperature, he was like, oh, yeah, you know, all I do is, you know, I wrap the thing with saran wrap around the lid to keep, you know, oxygen and critters out but then i just set the thermostat on the electric kettle to 100 degrees and let it sit there and let the kettle do the magic i was like duh yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly it's, it's that moment when you're like oh, i'm a dummy <laughs> yeah well, there you go there's your quick tip you know, use use what you got in front of you sometimes it actually has a better use than you think yeah if you have one of those electronic brewing systems that uh, you can set the temp uh, you know the grandfather the, the spidel the uh, robo brew the mash and boil any of those make use of it remember it's not uh, just what it's designed for it's what you can think of and then on something other uh you know me i i sit on the internet all day but I've been a big Mike Rowe fan for a number of years. You know, I love the dirty jobs. I love the message of dirty jobs, which is, hey, you know, by the way, college isn't the end all be all. You know, there are a lot of need for tradespeople out there. And so Mike has gone on to do other things since dirty jobs ended uh, years ago in Discovery. And I stumbled across this one the other day, which is he has a TV show, quote unquote TV show on Facebook, on Facebook Watch called Returning the Favor. And they've done two seasons of it so far. And what the show is literally that Mike and his crew go out and they find people around the country that are nominated to them by by viewers who are doing interesting and good things. They do interviews with them and they figure out a way to surprise them to give them something they need. So, like, for instance, they did a story about a guy in Florida who is a retired cop who you know, builds bicycles for kids in the community out of spare bikes that, that people have drop off in his yard. And so they came in and they not only interviewed him, but then they surprised him with enough bikes for like 300 kids. Uh, or another one where a lady goes and uh, grabs up recycled, recyclable cans from all around uh, her area and turns around and uses those to buy school supplies for the area schools and also uses that as an effort to teach the kids about how to go about doing recycling, why recycling is important. So yeah, this show, each episode is like 20 minutes long 
And it's just fantastic, you know, the, you know, to sit there and watch these people as micro puts it, you know, they're bloody do gooders who are just slightly better than the rest of us and see them get rewarded for their work and the things that they're doing. Restore your faith in humanity, huh? One Facebook video at a time. And I never <laughs> thought I'd say that ever again. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for joining us for Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. You can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out a lot on the uh, homebrewing subreddit and uh, also the Slack homebrew channel. I'm on a whole bunch of different forums, uh, mainly the AHA discussion forum, but uh, you can find me at a bunch of different places, including Facebook. I seem to be spending a lot of time on there these days talking beer. And remember, if you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, or experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. If you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can leave us a voicemail or even a text at 626-765-1-ALE. Yeah, make sure you leave your name. Because I don't see them when you text. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Experimental Brewing.